0: Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and for the last month, I've had the privilege of being here inside of your community and sharing a uh, a series that we're calling Dear Church where we're outlining uh, some of the seven churches that are at the beginning of the book of Revelation. But I just want to say it's, it's gone so fast. Our time together has gone so fast. And it's been my privilege to be here. So thank you all for having me. Um, I, I, when I hear all those names getting called, I, it reinforces both last week and this week what I already have long suspected about this church. And that's that you all are on the move that you're doing incredible things in this community and we are blessed to have you right here in the middle of it. So thanks for all that you all do. Um, Well, if it's your first week, let me catch you up in a heart, in a second. If, this, if you've been with us at all this month, I want to build a little bit on what we've been talking about. The very first week together, we talked about the church of Ephesus, their radical love as they rescued babies and freed slaves and had small house churches that grew. The second week we were together, we talked about Sardis, that bold medical clinic church setting right next to the temple of Kibla where they were offering practical love and advancing the kingdom. And last week we talked about Laodicea who had lost their mission. They were lukewarm, known for nothing. And we're going to finish our last week uh, with the really light city of Pergamum where the scripture says Satan has his throne. So um, welcome uh, to this week where we talk about Pergamum. And I have a book coming out in 2022 about spiritual warfare. And I just wanted to share with you a little bit about the premise of it because it it fits into this attitude of the people in the church of Pergamum. I was, last year I was in a meeting and we were trying to turn something around and we were trying to have some reconciliation and healing. And I walked into the meeting as a leader with an agenda, the way leaders do when you're in charge of a room. And I looked around the room and I said, you know what? I'm not the only person with an agenda here. I want us to have things like encouragement and reconciliation and connection and trust, but we have an enemy and he has his own agenda and he's looking for us to be discouraged and distrusting and remain broken. And the Bible tells me in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm supposed to put on my spiritual armor. And the Bible tells me in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have an enemy who roars around like a lion and he wants to destroy us. And the problem for me when I hear sometimes those teachings, I think, okay, get your armor on and wait around because a lion's coming and he wants to destroy you. But here's, here's what even this month has reminded us. The enemy literally does the same things over and over again. He has no new tricks. And so if we already know what he's going to do, instead of me putting my armor on and waiting for the lion to come to me, I don't want to wait for him to come to me. That feels defensive. I want to go punch him first. I want to go take him out. And that spirit of spiritual offensiveness, that spiritual offensiveness, don't, like, don't read me wrong there, it, it, that, that I'm on the move and I'm unafraid of a place where satan has his throne that's the spirit of the church of pergamum and it reminds me some of the places that todd and i serve with back to back around the world where the church is persecuted those are some of the most powerful services sunday services i've ever been a part of because when the darkness is dark the light shines its brightest and that's that's what we're going to feel in pergamum if you haven't been with me then i'm going to help you understand what we'll do is i'm going to tell you four things about this culture and church community that when they received the letter, they already knew all those things about them, but we didn't, we don't know those things. We're, we're living in Montgomery in 2021. We wouldn't necessarily understand the cultural references or the history of their people the way they would. And so I'll tell you four things about that community. So when we finish our time together, reading the letter, we'll understand some of the, um, some of the messages embedded in it. The first fact I wanna tell you is that they worshiped a God called Asculapius. And Asclepius was a healing god. He was represented by a snake. He used a lot of snake imagery. It's that imagery that still resonates today with our medical symbol. You can go anywhere around the world if you see that symbol. You know there's a um, first aid cl- there. There's a, a medical clinic there that's still remnants of leftover From the imagery that was used with the god of Asclepius, he was a deceiving god masquerading as light. And tradition held that his disciples were so powerful that you could touch their robes and be healed. And Asclepius supposedly raised someone from the dead. And the myth is that Zeus, the god Zeus, was so mad because Asclepius was messing up the natural order of things that he struck him dead... And three days later, he rose and from the dead. And in order to keep an eye on him, Zeus put him at the right hand. And so when Jesus came around and the disciples came into Pergamum with the good news that they've been commissioned to tell, they just saw it as a warmed up version of a myth they'd already long believed. And Jesus knew that's what was gonna happen. And so he told them the way they're gonna know that we are different is by the way that we love. There in Pergamum, and was worshipped all over Asia Minor, but there in Pergamum, he had uh, a particular stronghold. And so the clinic that they had there was kind of like the Mayo Clinic. If you are really sick, you want to go see Asclepius in Pergamum. And here's what they would do in that hospital, that, that, that clinic there, the, what they called the Asclepius. They would change the food of the patients when they came in. They would give them opium, which was like a stress reliever. They would make them exercise. They would show them the theater, which would make them laugh, and they gave them mud treatments. The dirt had some magnesium in it, so it was slightly radioactive, and it would heal a lot of skin diseases. But if you made me rest and changed my food and made me laugh and had me exercise, guess what? I'd feel a lot better. And that's what would happen. People were leaving the Osculapian feeling much better and giving credit to Osculapius. And once you were healed, what they would give you is a white plaque or a white stone that would have your name and your healed diagnosis on it. And we'll read in the letter a little something about white stones and white plaques but there was also an Asclepian in another town that you can read about called Corinth where the letter to Corinthians was written and in Corinth their, their system was if you were healed in the Asclepian they actually made a cast of whatever body part would have been healed like your kidney or your like gallbladder or your elbow or whatever so all over Corinth, there were these white plastered like statues of your body part around you. And it, it's, it's to the Corinthians that Paul would write about how we are one body made up of many parts, which would have made a lot of sense to them. That's just a little side note. But my relationship with the understanding of God as our great physician and any other version of healing as false, it's, it's a pretty complicated story, personal story for me. Um, when I was 24, so uh, well, gosh, I, you all can do some math here. Approximately 25 years ago, um, I was. Uh, uh, my father got sick at age 51 with cancer, and it was okay to me because my Bible told me what to do if somebody I loved was sick. We were going to pray in Jesus' name and we were going to do it or two or three were gathered and we were going to do it with healing oils and we were going to do it after we fasted all day. And, and I, when he was sick, I was telling everybody, no worries, my God is a healing God and we can trust him to do something about it. So imagine my surprise when 10 months later, God took my dad home to heaven and I didn't have room in my theology for anything like that. And Jesus and I broke up for a little bit. And uh, life apart from God doesn't feel very good, so I came crawling back to him. But I kept saying, I feel like I have a spiritual bruise. And the way that you protect your bruises is you're tender with them. I just kept working around my bruise. I went on to become a professional Christian, right? I was like a missionary. And Todd and I, we, that when Back to Back started, there was no organization, really no funding. We just went on our savings account. And that first year we lived in Mexico, 1997, I can remember, um, well, we got pregnant right away, so I thought I was allergic to chili peppers, but um, I, we had a baby nine months after we got there. And during that year, I had an adoption seat in my heart. I knew, I knew that even though my body was working in those ways, I still wanted to adopt a baby. We found two little sisters we were crazy about. We started the process to adopt them to bring them into our family, but six months into that process, that adoption failed. After our first year living there, our savings account ran out. It was time for us to come to Cincinnati, earn some money, and really put some formation around this little organization we had started that year. And when we came back to Cincinnati, Todd called his boss over at CHCA, where he had been teaching prior to us going, Dane Jepsen, and asked him if he could have his job back. And much to our surprise, Dane and his wife, Terry, asked if they could trade us. They wanted to make a move into the mission field, so we traded them. Todd became an administrator over at CHCA, and Dane and Terry moved into our rental house in Mexico to resume the ministry life that we had begun the year before. And I can remember coming back to Cincinnati thrilled about my biological baby I had given birth to there but so confused why God hadn't completed this, this dream of ours to adopt and I was, I was feeling the pressure of that disappointment against my bruise that maybe God doesn't do everything that you want him to do. And then the first day of school, Todd was working really hard over there at that school. Some people thought he was too young for the position of a leadership that he held so he was working really hard to show everybody otherwise. And Dane called me at home, where I was with my daughter, and told me that a little girl that we loved, a different girl that we loved, four years old, had been hit by a car. And he had just gotten there, and he didn't really speak Spanish. And I I was like telling him, "Hey, go to this hospital. I just had a baby there. It's pretty nice. And like, like, ask for this doctor and trying to trying to help them orient them what to do in this crisis. And he and I couldn't figure out. Today we know all about international wire transfers, but this was like ground zero. So we couldn't figure out quite how I could get him the money he needed. And I looked at my watch. I said, hey, there's a noon flight out of Cincinnati to Monterey. I'm going to come right now. I'll just bring my baby. I'll bring some money. No worries. I'll meet you there. So he was like, okay, great. So he, he and that little girl and Terry went off to the hospital, and I packed up my daughter. And I was thinking to myself, Todd has a lot going on at work this week. And I, don't, I just don't want to bother him. So I <laughs> left him a little note on the kitchen table. Like, ran to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's in the back row right now. Okay, ran to Mexico and uh, Ruth got hit by a car and I took the baby and now you can focus on work this week. No worries. And PS, I took a bunch of money and, you know, off, <laughs> off we went. We get to Mexico. Happy to report Ruth recovered from her surgeries. I went straight to the hospital and then I went back to the house that had been our house the year before and that Dane and Terry were living in and the phone rang and they looked at me like, you time, your turn to face the music. And I picked up the phone thinking it was Todd, but it wasn't. It was somebody who was looking for me in that house, and I shouldn't have been there that night. And if Dane and Terry had answered the phone, they probably wouldn't have understood them. And it was an attorney who was networking, looking for, for some family that was paperwork ready to adopt a baby boy who had been transferred from one Mexican state to another and whose international adoption eligibility had about 72 hours left, and they had just heard about us. And so they asked me if I was interested in flying to a whole other state I'd never been to before called Veracruz to adopt a little boy um, the next day at noon. And I was thinking to myself, this phone call home is getting more interesting by the minute, right? (laughs) But then the Lord gave me a gift that the Bible calls the peace that passes all understanding where something doesn't make sense to anybody looking in. But when you're in the center of what God has asked of you, it does make sense what, what God is asking of you. And I took instructions on how to get to the courthouse in Veracruz, and I hung up the phone, and then I, I called my house. And uh, Todd answered the phone in Spanish, playfully acknowledged who he, he knew was on the other line, and then uh, the, the balance of that conversation is not totally appropriate for a Sunday morning, so I won't tell you all of that, but just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was lovely about it all, and we talked about Ruth and her injuries, and then I told him about this phone call, and he asked for a minute to breathe in the call. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I told you last week in Exodus chapter 25 when God's giving instructions to Moses on how to build a tabernacle. He basically says to him, make room for a space. Make room for me and I will come and fill it. And when Todd was asking for space on that phone call, he was was asking for room to be made so so the Lord could fill it. And in that filling of that space, the Lord confirmed to him what he was confirming in me. That this was indeed God's will. And so I said, oh gosh. Good luck telling your brand new bosses. You'll be back, you know, in an indefinite amount of time. And the next day, Todd and I flew together to the city of Veracruz where we met our son Evan that day for the first time. And I'd only been a mom like three months. I wasn't really all that experienced. But I knew right away something was wrong with this baby. His legs were scissored and I couldn't open them. His arms were like kind of frozen in a weird position and I couldn't straighten them out. He was in a, a rainforest. We had this crazy fungus growing up him. He had this growth on his tongue that made him uninterested in eating, so his belly was really bloated. And we were looking at our cross legged, frozen, harmed, fungus covered, bloated baby. And we were like, oh my gosh, isn't he so cute? eventually we would get back here to cincinnati and i took him over to that fabulous children's hospital and after lots of tests we were able to receive a diagnosis for what was happening with him and the doctor said to me hey there's four degrees of cerebral palsy mild moderate severe and profound and your son has severe cerebral palsy and he's not going to walk he's not going to talk he's not going to live independently and um the faster you get your head wrapped around that diagnosis, the better off for that baby it's going to be. And he didn't even realize it, but he was grinding his heel in my spiritual bruise because I didn't even know how to ask God to heal. In fact, I thought he didn't do it anymore. Those were just Bible stories. And uh, we put all of our plans on hold to go back to Mexico, and we dove deeply into the medical community here. Like, Monday we were at physical therapy, Tuesday we were at occupational therapy, Wednesday I was at some water therapy, Thursday we went to like a magnetic therapy, Friday I went personally to therapy, like we were busy trying to get as healthy as possible. Eighteen months passes and Evan's meeting none of the milestones that were age appropriate for his development. A lady from the Warren County Early Childhood Intervention Program came to my house And it was her job to look around at my environment and show me how I might use some of the natural habitat we had for therapeutic purposes. And she was watching Evan struggle to to move. His muscles were hypertonic, which meant every muscle movement was difficult and painful. And his sister, meanwhile, was stealing toys out of his hand, left or right, and walking across the room. And she said to me, you know what? I think it looks to me like you're rescuing him too much. And I said, you know what? you can get out of my house. <laughs> She's now a friend of mine. But at the time, I was like, like are you, you've got to be kidding me. The kid is constantly in therapy. We are always dangling chairs in front of his head. We are not rescuing him too much. And I escorted her out, and Evan started to cry, and I joined him. And I, st- I was crying first about him, and then I was crying about my dad, and then I was crying about Mexico. And like, when you open up that, when you open that up, it just kind of all comes out. And I left the room to go get some Kleenex to wipe my face up. And it was a fine because he's not going anywhere. And when I came back in the room, he had moved about halfway across it. And what was so strange, I mean, he'd never done anything like that before. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to go get my phone to call my mom to come see what's happening. And so I left the room to get our phones that used to be on the walls. Remember those? And, um <laughs> And when I came back in the room, he was all the way across it, and he was kind of up, up against a couch that had a fabric skirt to it. And he grabbed onto that skirt with his hands, and he just started to rock. And it wasn't really all that pretty, but he popped himself up to a stand. And when he stood up, all the hair on the back of my neck did, too, because I recognized I was looking at something miraculous. And I didn't, quite, I didn't, have, any, I didn't have any space for that to sit and then he held onto that couch and he cruised, what they call cruising, cruised across the length of it, got to the end, pivoted on his heel, and he walked across the room into my arms. No words, right? I had, I had no words. I just scooped him up. like I put him and his sister in car seats, drove them 100 miles an hour to the, over here to CHCA where I pretty much took a bush out on my way into that circle drive. <laughs> Todd's f- off his face, the front came running out to figure out what was on fire. And uh, I just set Evan down. He walked over to his dad in that lobby, and we had a moment where we were talking about wedding aisles and soccer fields and. It was crazy, and we pretty much turned around and moved right back to Mexico, and Evan never showed another sign of cerebral palsy, and in Mexico, we play lots of soccer, right? So he, he's like a four-year-old, eventually, playing on a soccer team, and he'd get a little goal, and I'd be on the sidelines bawling my eyes out that God was so good to him and to us, but he wasn't even paying attention because he's like four, and then he'd be like, you know, sixth grade, and he'd say you can't come to my soccer games if you're going to cry on the sideline when I score. Like, <laughs> like ninth grade, you can't travel with my soccer team if you're going to cry when I score. You know. When, when he was 16, we moved here to Cincinnati, and he learned how to catch a football as a wide receiver for King's High School. And I can remember when he first caught his touchdown, his first touchdown pass, I was like, ah, you know, over there eventually he would go to Taylor University where he played wide receiver for that school. You can show that picture now. This is him and his sister. Um, uh, Yeah. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) And A couple of years ago, before he graduated from Taylor, I went to their school and I told his testimony and I was on a stage and people weren't figuring out the story I was telling about this baby and then all of a sudden it started to click to them when I had him come on stage that the story I was telling was about a person on campus that they recognized and college students do what they do. They started to like roar, you know, like they're responding in like a pep rally kind of fashion and he's on the stage with me kind of holding onto my shoulder like, and And all of a sudden I stopped them and I said, listen to me, the reason I tell you something like this about our family is not so you know something wildly personal about us. I tell you this story because you need to know that in this day and age, with God, still, all things are possible. That same girl, same God, same faith, prayed for two people that I loved. And one of those stories turned out nothing like I wanted it to. And the other story turned out way better than I ever imagined or even asked for. And the way that God healed my spiritual bruises, he said, I am not a genie God. I am sovereign. And I have a perspective that you don't. And if I decide to do something, it's because it's good and it's to be trusted. And that's why our healing God, our great physician, is so wildly different than any kind of Asclepius could be. We cannot manipulate our God. He is good and will do what it is that he wills. The second fact I want you to know about Pergamum is they had, unfortunately, a man named Antipas who was martyred in 92 AD. And Antipas was burned to death in this brazen, bull-shaped altar that was used for casting out demons. And instead of causing the believers in Pergamum to shrink back out of fear, which was its intended, instead they stepped up in faith and they'll be commended for not backing down even in the face of that kind of persecution. And again, we see that 2021 all over the world, the best places to go to church are in places of deep persecution where Christians have made a decision that this is what I believe at all costs. That would be the people in Pergamum. The third fact I want you to know is they're gonna reference Balaam this isn't the only place in the New Testament that this story Balaam is referenced. We see it also in Second Peter and in Jude. When someone references Balaam, they're talking about a story that we can find in Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25. This afternoon, take a chance to look at those stories. But here's what, it's kind of a crazy story. Balaam is known for being, he was famous for being able to bless and curse things. So a king, this king named Balak, which is confusing because of Balaam, but anyways, this king hires Balaam and says, would you curse the nation of Israel because they're growing so large? I'm actually the king of the Moabites and Midianites, and Israel is much bigger than we are. And if they decide to turn against us, there's too many of them. So would you curse them for me? And Balaam tries several times. That's the story about the donkey wouldn't let him and talks to him and read that story. And so finally, Balaam says to the king, you're right. I can't can't do it. Literally, their God will not let me curse them. But I got another idea. Draw them into compromise. They'll just end up cursing themselves. Expose them to the Midianite and Moabite women, and their own sense of depravity will fall. And they'll intermarry with the Midianite and Moabite women, and those women will expose them to gods, and they're gonna have to let their gods live amongst them in order to keep the women happy, what they want the women happy to make themselves happy. And so here's what's gonna happen. They're going to end up falling through compromise, and that's exactly what they did. And at some point, there were 24,000 Israelites that were dying from a plague that God put on the nation of Israel to get their attention. That compromise is not okay. And there's this crazy story about a guy named Phineas. He's the grandson of Aaron. You know the priest Aaron up there, Moses and Aaron? Phineas sees, he knows that God is not happy with all the compromise and the acceptance of gods that are happening in their camp because of the Midianite and and Moabite women. And he sees an Israelite man enter a tent with a Midianite woman, and they begin to perform the act. And Phineas takes a, a, a sword and he drives it through both of them in the middle of it. And as soon as the sword went through both of them, God lifted the curse because he recognized there's a remnant that I can work with. That understands that this is not okay. And the bottom line is they didn't replace the God of their ancestors for another person's God. They just added it. They just had God plus one. And that feels to me like a pretty relevant message for us here today in 2021. I don't really think the church is at risk of giving up Jesus of Nazareth. But I definitely think we're at risk of accepting other people's ideas of what is truth. And there is a cautionary tale there for us. The, the the fourth fact about Pergamum is they had something called the right of the sword flag. And if you had the right of the sword flag, it meant you in that space, the leader had the same power as Caesar. It would this isn't a perfect analogy, but it'd be kind of like the Supreme Court, like the final word. They had the right to decide somebody's life or death sentence. They were they were the final authority. And and John will write in his letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Like, you people think you have this right of the sword. You do not have any kind of sword. And we know what happens. Well, first of all, he's Jewish, so he's using the text. Uh, Isaiah 49.2 says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. We know the, the sword out of the mouth of the Lord, the Bible tells us, divides bone and marrow, judges thoughts and actions. It's powerful. We've talked about that before this month. And John will say... You people are putting way too much power and influence to this, 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 this right of the sword flag. There's only one who has the right to judge, and even he doesn't do it. And there's a teaching that Todd and I learned in 2010, probably the most frequently talked about or requested teaching that I do. It's about reconciliation. Reconciliation. There's a word that I hope sends some of you on a study portrayal today. The word is sulha, S-U-L-H-A, ancient word. You'll see if you spend any time studying it that outside of faith circles, there are some people who have taken that word and use it. But it means when two people who are in conflict meet together at the covenantal table of reconciliation, there becomes a release of the conflict and a new future gets written. i want you to imagine with me for a minute that michael your beloved worship pastor and i are in a fight and that we are in some kind of deep conflict and because i'm the one with the microphone we will make it all my fault so michael did nothing i did everything I, i i messed it up in a typical relationship michael would wait for me to come say sorry to him right that's what we do we ask for forgiveness and and if i don't say if i don't ask forgiveness we tend to let the person that's been wrong kind of off the hook. Like, you, know, you have no responsibility. They're not even sorry for what they did. But the truth is maybe I don't even know how it started with Michael. Like, do we have relationships where, like, sometimes they just kind of aren't now what they used to be and you're not really even sure why it is. It just has changed. But you're not going to go say sorry. You're not even sure if it's your fault. And those relationships kind of move in the wrong direction. Or maybe, if y'all knew Michael the way I did, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, I did this last thing, but he started it. He got what he had coming. <laughs> Just kidding. This is an analogy. <laughs> and sometimes we justify our actions because we feel that we, we we're self-righteous in our choices. We have we're justified in what we do. Well, I'm not fixing it with him. <laughs> he got what he had coming. Or maybe, get in line, Michael, I'm actually breaking relationship everywhere. In fact, like there's eight other people that also I've broken relationship with. But I'm not fixing it with you. Anywhere that I'm fixing it with them, I'm in a dark place. And if it just stayed contained between Michael and I, then maybe who cares seven billion other people on the planet I can be in relationship with. But that's not what happens to conflict. Conflict is like cancer. It eats healthy things around it. And pretty soon you guys... Are participating in like the second serve Saturday with Michael. And he like lets it slip a little bit about what that guest speaker said to him or did to him. And you are subtly being recruited onto Team Michael. And you all come to a workshop I do here. And I just use as an example this like one worship pastor who said this one thing to me. And I build a case against Michael that's so convincing that I have effectively recruited you onto Team Beth. And then you two sides find yourself serving together in children's ministry at some point and you recognize you're on two different sides of a story that literally has nothing to do with you. And this is how churches split. This is how extended families fall apart. People actually fight about things that have nothing to do with them. And God, you know, oh gosh, Jesus turns everything upside down. What feels so natural to us, he asks the opposite of it. That's why it requires his supernatural power inside of us. But in, in God's economy, the person who, who has been wronged, in this case Michael, is to take initiation with the person that did the wronging. That's a sulha. And if Michael was to offer me traditionally some kind of food or drink, he's announcing to me and everybody else watching that that which I have done against him, he will hold against me no longer. And now neither can any of you. I want you to look at some examples from Genesis to Revelation with me. There's a story about a man named Jacob who loved a woman named Rachel. Gosh, first service I said the wrong name. I'm just realizing. Bummer. Okay, well. Oh, well. You all know the real one. Okay. Worked seven years for the woman that he really wanted Then that father-in-law who told him that's what was required for her hand, he ended up tricking her at seven years, gave him the sister he never really liked in marriage, and he had to work seven more years. In that storyline, I am Laban, the father-in-law, the tricker. And Michael would be the example of Jacob, the one that was tricked. Finally, he's free to go. He goes heading up the hills with his twice as many women and cattle and servants as he wanted, and Laban goes chasing up after him. And if we were watching this on reality television, we'd be like, are you kidding me? Take him out. He has ruined your life. Whatever you're going to do to him, he has it coming. But if he would have done that, then everyone listening would have been defined by what happened against their family instead of free to live that which God had for their family. So instead, Jacob goes and kills a fattened calf offering in essence a sulha to that father-in-law who then kisses and blesses their daughters and grandchildren and now that family's free to go. Think about the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery by his brothers, definitely the one that has been wronged. Years later, when, after he's been imprisoned and had this terrible life, he's like prime minister of Egypt. His brothers, in a famine, have no choice but to come to Egypt and look for grain. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He could have retaliated and sought revenge in that moment, but he doesn't. Instead, he does give them that grain, offering them that sulha, freeing them from the guilt they have been carrying for what they had done against their brother and against their father. And now that family can live, finish the book of Genesis, and read what happens to their family. Think about the story of the prodigal son. That guy did the wrong thing, asked his dad for half of his inheritance. Those people lived in common purse. That dad would have had to go around and ask other people for some of his money they would have been blazing mad at that boy who took that money and went off and squandered it when that boy turned around and came back. That father went, ran to him, killed the fattened calf, fed it to the community, in essence telling everybody, through this sulha, that which this boy has done against me, I hold against him no longer, and now community, neither can you. I think this is why jesus was always eating with tax collectors and sinners he was always initiating with people who had sinned against him think about peter denied christ three times definitely did the wrong thing almost quit the discipleship jesus will say go get the disciples and peter he brings them on a beach he gives peter a sulha right what's he give him fish looking at peter like hey buddy i need you in this story because 50 days from now, at the day of Pentecost, I'm going to use you to add 3,000 people to the church. What we do against the Lord, he holds against us no longer. Last week we talked about Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, says Jesus. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He's talking about a suha. Because Jesus does not wait for us to get ourselves together. And come to him and ask for forgiveness. But the one who has been wronged initiates with us. And when we take communion at that covenantal table of reconciliation, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you who have wronged me, that which you have done against me, I will hold against you no longer. And now, neither can anybody else. I want you to go with me to the scene of the last supper. The year the Lord died, the last supper fell on the feast of the unleavened bread. What they would have done for a long time before that night is taken a piece of bread without leaven because leaven represented sin. The head of the household would have ripped off the corner of that bread. This is called the Komen, and he would have hidden it. And it symbolizes coming one day is one without sin who is hidden from my sight. And at the end of that meal, he would have pulled it out, ripped a piece of that bread and given it to everybody. And what does that look like to us today? Like communion, right? A long time before Jesus came to earth. So Jesus on the last supper held up that bread without leaven. He ripped off a corner of it and what did he say? This is my body. It's broken for you. I'm the afikomen. I'm the one you've long been waiting for. I'm the one without sin. Now when you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Because I'm initiating with you. And that which you have done against me. I not hold against you any longer and neither now can anybody else. And it is with that kind of spirit that John writes to the church of Pergamum these words to the angel of the church in Pergamum write these are the words of him who has the sharp double edged sword don't be putting any confidence in that flag that hangs above your town. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. In the face of persecution, brothers and sisters, you stood. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise. You also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nickelodeon. remember right? The Nicolaitans. <laughs> we talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Those are those people that cross their fingers behind the back that say one thing and do another. It's not acceptable in the church. And he wants them to know it. So the best word that he says over and over again to the church, he says next. It's the loving thing to say. Repent. Turn your way. Come back to my road. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I am the healer, he tells us. You want a white stone? You want to live like a living stone? I'm gonna put your stone out among the people and you testify to me. This is the word for us in 2021. May we not compromise. May we understand the power of the sword. May we not hold things against our brothers and sisters and those outside of God's household because he doesn't hold anything against us. And may we trust in the one who writes stories who are sovereign and good. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.